1: 7th of October 2023 will go down in history. The day the strongest military power in the Middle East suddenly looked weak and vulnerable. The whole world needs to come to terms with the consequences and the possibilities of a wider war. Israel, although this is sometimes forgotten, has the only nuclear arsenal in the Middle East, at least 80 nuclear weapons. Israelis see it as the ultimate deterrent against those who wish to destroy the Israeli state. And yet this high-tech regional superpower was attacked in the most brutal way by conventionally armed Hamas fighters who breached a border fence to commit horrendous atrocities against largely unarmed civilians. Hamas, of course, still holds Israeli hostages in conditions which are almost unimaginable. Meanwhile, the Israeli army has plowed into Gaza, Within a week of the Hamas attack, Israel had dropped 6,000 bombs on the 140-square-mile enclave. And so another horror story has developed with the deaths of thousands and thousands of Palestinians, including many children. There have been demonstrations around the world against the Israeli military campaign. Social media is inevitably divided with claim and counterclaim, as well as images of the violence. In today's episode, we'll go beyond the daily horror stories to focus on the wider consequences, the possibility of the conflict spreading, and also the possibilities for peace. How will it all end? This is Not A Drill. Welcome back to This Is Not A Drill. I'm Gavin Esler. What's happening in Gaza right now is a conflict that involves not just Israelis and Palestinians, but a series of strategic rivals, including Iran, neighboring Arab countries, and the United States. Tehran broke off diplomatic relations with Israel after the 1979 Iranian Revolution. The two countries have had a bitter relationship for decades since. Iran backs at least three regional insurgent groups, Hamas, Hezbollah in Lebanon, and the Houthis in Yemen. The Tehran regime's strategic rivals with whom it has, to put it politely, an uneasy relationship, include Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and other Arab states. Recently, these Arab states have tried to pursue a better relationship with Israel, although the Gaza crisis has put that on hold, as Hamas no doubt predicted. To take us through the wider strategic and security picture, we'll hear in a moment from the author and journalist Kim Gattas. She's based in the Lebanese capital Beirut, where Hezbollah has a hugely significant presence. In Lebanon, Iran is often regarded as pulling the strings, and Israel is seen as an extremely difficult neighbor. But first, we turn to the Guardian columnist and co-host of the Unholy podcast, Jonathan Friedland. He's author of, among other things, the escape artist. It's the story of the man who broke out of Auschwitz to warn the world of the Holocaust. Jonathan, could we begin with where we are now? I mean, there are those who predicted that Israel would retaliate. Of course it would but it could fall into a trap. And the trap would be that there would be so many dead people in Gaza that it would rebound diplomatically, politically, and I suppose morally. Is that what's happening, do you think?
2: Well, I was one of those who feared that and and wrote that early on, that that there was a a, a trap being laid here. So from the two vantage points, from Israel's point of view, first of all, it, it always understands that it operates with two stopwatches, as it were, sort of hanging over it. On the one hand, there's the military stopwatch. You know, How much time do you have physically, militarily to eradicate Hamas as a fighting force? That's the objective it sent itself. How long does that take as a task, just almost logistically and militarily? And then on the other is the one you kind of alluded to, which is, there's this other clock ticking, which is the world's patience. The The strange thing from the other side, from Hamas's point of view, is they are a very unusual kind of enemy. Uh, and this is certainly how Israel would see this, which is they are thinking of both those clocks too, because they're thinking uh, there's a physical battle with Israel, but there's this other element, which I think does make the whole thing different and sort of asymmetric, which is normally the military on one side don't want people in danger. They don't want children, photographs of dead children that people might see. Hamas regard that as uh, an asset in the other plane—that battle for world opinion. They've more or less said as much. Um, you know, this isn't just a sort of polemical view. They acknowledge that this is part of the battle plan, and that's why this is a kind—an of unusual war. I know we always talk about there's the real war and the informational war. They—they are interwoven with each other in this conflict in a particularly unusual way because one side, I think thinks it actually gains, even when, by ordinary measure, it loses.
1: Can we talk about Netanyahu and his options? I mean, someone many years ago, uh, an Israeli professor, said to me, the trouble is, if all you have is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. Referring to Netanyahu, his track record as a military hero and so on, but his inability to see that something has to be done with Gaza as uh, Palestinians would say it's not just an open prison. I mean, Netanyahu may win this militarily in some way, whatever that might mean, but politically, is he in trouble?
2: Yes, I think he is. Um, the clock is ticking on him for a whole series of sort of domestic reasons. I mean, one of them is he has refused to take any responsibility for what happened on October 7th. Whereas the top brass of the Israeli military and intelligence have said that they are responsible for what is just at the, uh, to put it at its mildest, you know, a huge and lethal security lapse, that they allowed this threat to cross the border almost unopposed for hours and hours. That will lead to huge soul-searching and sort of introspection in the Israeli military, how they could have fallen asleep on what is the core job to protect citizens. But there has to be a political dimension to that. And he will be held accountable simply for that, that the greatest loss of life on a single day in Israeli history happened on his watch. It seems impossible to imagine him staying there for long. I, you know, Don't think he won't try, by the way. I mean, the idea that he'll do what, for example, Golda Meir, Israel's Prime Minister in 1973, which was the last equivalent huge lapse and military strategic failure, which was the Yom Kippur War of October 1973, whose anniversary, by the way, was 50 years and one day before the October 7th uh, massacres. Uh, she stepped up afterwards and said, this is on me, I take responsibility, and she went. That's not Netanyahu's style, he won't do that. But even people on the right, will be saying and are saying, this is a huge failure. He has to pay a political price. They, the argument tends to be, should that happen now, during the war, or afterwards, it suits him for it to be afterwards. It therefore suits him for it to be longer. The longer the war goes on, the more it postpones the day of reckoning. And we should say, because it's sort of the you know crucial fact, he needs to be in the Prime Minister's chair to keep him out of jail. He is still the subject of three ongoing corruption trials. And the driving purpose for him for the last year or two years has been not, you know, this geopolitical plan or that strategic vision. It's been what keeps me out of jail. And therefore, if he's got this ultra-right coalition. You know, people think, oh, does that signal a rightward drift from Netanyahu, who was militarily always cautious, actually, relatively, no, it just means they were the only people, those far-right parties, who would guarantee to do whatever it took to keep him out of jail, to give him some kind of immunity or whatever, or, or to overturn the entire legal system. So the clock is ticking on him. I think it goes deeper than just a security failure on the day. His whole strategy for the last 15 years was actually to build up Hamas uh, at the expense, he hoped, of the more moderate Palestinian secular nationalists of Fatah who rule in the West Bank, or rule up to a point, you know, it's still occupied. It. Um, uh, he will be held accountable for that. That that he made that huge strategic decade and a half long gamble that that was wrong and that didn't work um, because he thought that you wanted to build up Hamas, keep the Palestinians divided, and that way you'll postpone forever the day of the Palestinian state. All of this. To your key point, though, about hammers and nails, all of this is predicated on the fact that he had not seen the need for a political deal with the Palestinians that would, at some point, involve some form of partition of historic Palestine or the land, capital L, of Israel, capital I. He is really unusual in Israeli prime ministers of the right in not having come to that you know, uh, moment, I was about to say road to Damascus, but that's probably the wrong image for this region. Uh, previous Israeli prime ministers, even really hawkish ones, Ariel Sharon um, of the right, Yitzhak Rabin of Labour, a moment reaches them where they are in that chair and they think we have to eventually do a deal with the Palestinians. And Netanyahu has never come to that moment.
1: Let me pick up precisely that point, because I don't know if you you were around when Rabin met the PLO and Yasser Arafat. I I was in Washington. We
2: were both there at the same time, actually, you and I.
1: Yeah, I think we both were. And I remember that moment thinking, this is huge. This is amazing. And Rabin was assassinated by someone in Israel, by an Israeli, uh, who felt he was selling out that's the problem, isn't it? Blessed are the peacemakers. But you go down this road, and there are always there's always someone in this volatile region who actually is prepared to kill you rather than concede anything.
2: Absolutely right. And um, I too remember thinking that was the epic moment where things were going to change in the Middle East, and it was in tandem with other stories of journey you've covered, or I touched on a bit Northern Ireland, the peace process there. South Africa. And it felt like this was the post-Cold War period where all the big, long-running, intractable conflicts were being solved. And there was that epic moment, it felt like, of Arafat and Rabin, these sort of both of them totemic figures for their peoples, shaking hands and, in Rabin's words, saying, enough of tears, enough of bloodshed, enough. We thought it was going to be the end. And it wasn't. And it was derailed, we should say, by extremists on both sides. Yes, the bullet that was fired into the back of Yitzhak Rabin, very symbolically fired into his back by one of his own, and a, a Jewish Israeli. But that assassin was riding a wave of internal dissent and sort of incitement in Israel, in which, by the way, Netanyahu did play a role, that was entirely about a string of suicide bombings and bus bombings in the mid-1990s between the handshake of 1993, White House lawn, and Rabin's death in November 95, in between there were a period of suicide bombings in which the key moving force was, among other groups, Hamas. They saw the prospect of a two-state solution, a division of the land, and thought, no way. Let's drive Israel crazy with grief by planting bombs on buses. That would derail the peace process. And sure enough, it generates an assassin who says, we can't give up land because if we do, there's going to be more of these bus bombings. And you have these maximalists, is what I wrote recently. There's this debate between, max, not debate, it's a conflict between maximalists, Israeli and Palestinian, versus partitionists, Israelis and Palestinian, both. And the partitionists uh, are, you know, the people who thought we've got to divide this land, Israeli and Palestinian, came really close to doing the deal that could have done this, but they didn't come far enough. And in the end, they ended up undermining and weakening and discrediting each other. And that left the stage clear for the maximalists, the Hamas types, and also you know, Yigal Amir, the assassin of Yitzhak Rabin, whose game is let's derail anything that looks like peace that might mean we have to give up some. We'd rather have the possibility of it all and live with violence than the compromise that means we only get some. And that has is been Israel and Palestine's shared tragedy.
1: I wonder whether one of the interesting things to misquote Sherlock Holmes here is that the dog that d- didn't bark. So we, which is Iran, uh, and Iran, as we know, uh, backs Hezbollah. They're backing the Houthis, and they are backing apparently to some level Hamas, despite some differences. But where are we in that? Because you could say that they've had a great success in derailing some kind of rapprochement between the Israelis and Saudi Arabia, but that may not last. I mean, I'd I'd be just interested in your perspective on that.
2: It is fascinating, and in some ways, it is the heart of the matter. I mean, again, Israeli military strategists would talk to you as if this battle is, in a way, with Iran. They see Hamas as a proxy of Iran. They think it's inseparable from The other Iranian proxy, the other front, Hezbollah to the north in Lebanon, they think, I've heard people say, and this is interesting again, because it cuts two different ways. It could go either, as it were, left or right, which is, well, we can't go back again. Israel cannot go back into being caught in this pincer where you have two arms of the Iranian project on their borders, Hamas to the south, Hezbollah to the north. And the reason why I say it could go left or right is that means because I've heard some people say, therefore, we have to militarily eradicate both as fighting forces. And by the way, Hezbollah is much, much more well-armed and more powerful and more potent a threat slash enemy for Israel than Hamas is. And we've seen what dealing with them as Israel would see it in Gaza has entailed. Imagine that on an even bigger scale uh, to the north. But there are others who say, we have to deal with this, meaning, and I've only heard just the first sort of hints of this, there has to be a political or diplomatic option that is all-encompassing, go big or go home, that looks at the whole region, that says, yes, there's that normalization project that was on track for Israel and Saudi Arabia, but you've got to go even bigger. You've got to somehow include Iran. I mean, that's an amazingly ambitious prospect but then you think you remind yourself that the Americans were involved in trying to patch together rebuild that nuclear deal with Iran you see that the Saudis and the Iranians for all their rivalry were having their own kind of on and off rapprochement so does it mean that you know Israel goes into uh, 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 i was going to say goes to war with Iran in a way it already is via these proxies but does it does that become more direct that's a terrifying prospect Of a regional conflagration between the two big military powers in the region, really, which are Israel and Iraq? Or uh, do you you know, and this is the one I would obviously hope for, does somebody realize this cannot hold and you have to think of the whole thing together and, and work out some diplomatic option that includes everything?
1: Thanks for listening to This Is Not a Drill. If you've appreciated what you've heard so far and would like to help us make the show, which will hit your podcast players weekly, then you can support us via Patreon. For as little as £3 a month, you'll get exclusive extra content, plus access to our merch and the chance to have a say in future episodes. Just search Patreon. This is not a drill to sign up now.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: The President of the United States,
3: the Prime Minister of the State of Israel, and His Highness, the Minister of Foreign Affairs and International Cooperation of the United Arab Emirates, will sign a treaty of peace, diplomatic relations, and
1: full normalization. On a visit to the Gulf earlier this month, I met Emiratis who deplored both the killings in Gaza and also those by Hamas. I was also reminded of the Abraham Accords, Signed in September 2020, the Accords constitute a declaration of peace between the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain on one side and Israel. The Accords say that we, the undersigned, recognize the importance of maintaining and strengthening peace in the Middle East and around the world based on mutual understanding and coexistence, as well as respect for human dignity and freedom, including religious freedom. The prospect of Saudi Arabia joining the UAE in a better relationship with Israel has, for now at least, been derailed by the current conflict. And that brings us once more to the old lawyer's question, cui bono, who benefits from the killings and the chaos? We're back with Iran, potentially. That's why This Is Not A Drill wanted to catch up with Kim Gattas in Beirut. She's the author of Black Wave, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and the Rivalry That Unravelled the Middle East. Kim, first of all, where should we look for Iran's influence in what's happening in and around Israel at the moment?
3: Iran has been using the Palestinian card, uh, if you will, the cause of of the Palestinians for forty five years to assert itself as a leader in the region, a leader beyond the borders of Iran, a leader beyond the community of, of Shias, and has. Espoused the cause via its support of proxies and allies like Hezbollah, the Shia militant group in Lebanon, or the Houthis in Yemen. And of course, they have a long standing relationship with Palestinian militant groups dating back to before 1979, even the year of the Iranian revolution. And they have a relationship with Hamas. Iran is, of course, a dominantly Shia country, Hamas is Sunni. So it's not the same relationship as the one you have between. Iran and Hezbollah, but there is a relationship there. Iran provides money, provides weapons, provides training, as far as we know. But when it comes to the attack that Hamas conducted on October 7th, it appears that Iran had probably given mostly a blanket approval to operations against Israel, but was not aware of the details of what Hamas was planning. What's interesting to me as well, speaking to Western diplomats in Iran, is that it appears that Iran has no plan for what comes next. They were to some extent taken by surprise by the October 7th. I'm not uh, uh, denying their responsibility, but I'm saying they did not expect it to go on like that or to unfold like that. And they don't seem to have a plan for what comes after. And the clearest example of that is what we're seeing unfold on the border between Lebanon and Israel, where the response from Hezbollah has been very muted, um, if you could describe it like that. And to me, that shows that um, Iran may applaud Hamas's operation and attack uh, on the 7th of October, but it's very careful about not being dragged into a war itself. Um, could I un-
1: unpick some of the bits of that? One interesting bit is the prospect that there was of an Israeli Saudi rapprochement of some sort. And the Saudis, because of what's been going on in Yemen and other places too, have very, very little time for the Iranians and they both see each other as strategic rivals. So this is a bit like three-dimensional chess, isn't it? I mean, how how is Iran trying to play this? Is there really a long-term goal? Or is there simply uh, the Iranian revolution wants to keep all those neighbours rather unbalanced?
3: Well, don't forget that alongside the Saudi-Israeli normalisation talks, there was also a Saudi-Iran rapprochement at the beginning of the year after many years of rupture of diplomatic relations between the two. I wouldn't say they're just strategic rivals, Saudi Arabia and Iran. They're bitter enemies at this point. And they've had moments of rapprochement before, in the 90s, for example. But since the coming to power of Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini in 1979, the enmity between them has been fairly constant in in the region and they don't trust each other and the declared goal one of the declared goals of Khomeini at the time was really to dethrone the house of Saud because they were not worthy as custodians of the two holy sites of of Islam and that is something that Crown Prince Muhammad bin salman has never really quite forgotten and I remember very clearly when he said that his predecessors or the kings preceding his father, uh, King, uh, King Salman, had been in essence fooled by the Iranians when they had this rapprochement in the 90s between Iran and Saudi Arabia. But in the background, the Iranian Revolutionary Guards were expanding their influence. And he said, we're not going to be fooled again. So I thought it was interesting when they had the rapprochement at the beginning of the year. And it was clear to me that this was a clever move by the Saudis to uh, diffuse tension in the region, which had become untenable. And the risk at the time was really of something going terribly wrong between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And so this rapprochement was a way for the Saudis to buy some time, get some breathing space, uh, preserve Mohammed bin Salman's grand vision for the kingdom, you know, economic prosperity and so on. But for the Iranians, it was also a way of buying time because they were feeling increasingly under pressure, not just under U.S. sanctions, but feeling encircled in a region where countries like Saudi Arabia were talking about potential peace with the Israelis. So this is a long prelude to quickly answering your question. What is Iran's goal? Its long professed goal is to push back against American influence in the region. Um, They also want to preserve and protect themselves and the regime and the Islamic Republic of Iran and ensure the succession of the supreme leader, uh, Ali Khamenei. And to do that, they need to project power, uh, have groups in the region like Hezbollah and like Hamas that in essence operate like a key defense line. Syria and Lebanon are in essence seen by Iran as forward defense spaces that allow them to have this ring around them where they can fight the enemy far away from their borders while protecting uh, the regime. What
1: uh, kind of control or otherwise, you touched on it with uh, what has been going on on the borders of Gaza and within Israel, Uh, but what kind of control do the Iranians have with what Hamas, Hezbollah and the Houthis do? Is it simply they give them essentially money, guns, and let them get on with whatever? Or can they turn them on and off like a tap?
3: I think we have to differentiate between Hamas and the Houthis on the one hand and differentiate between them as well and Hezbollah. Hezbollah's really become close to an extension of Iran's paramilitary Quds Force, which is almost an expeditionary force of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards. Iran can turn them on and off, but Hezbollah has its own say in this equation. They're really equal partners. Uh, They're essential to Iran and to the regime's survival. Not only their agendas align, but Hezbollah has its own word to say. When it comes to Hamas, it's different because the relationship's not always been easy. In fact, it was very much strained over the last few years because of Iran's involvement in supporting President Bashar al-Assad of Syria with the help of Hezbollah as well. A Shia country and a Shia militia helping a Alawite president, so a minority president in Syria Uh, oppress, kill, and brutally murder a majority Sunni country. And that's where the schism Sunni Shia, which I don't always buy into, but does resurface every now and then, came to the foreground. And Hamas distanced itself from Iran and broke ties uh, because they couldn't abide that. They couldn't accept that Bashar al-Assad was murdering his people with the help of Iran and Hezbollah. But agendas aligned again. And they decided, you know, half a million people dead was 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 okay. Of course, I say that in, in jest in terms of, you know, how they proceed with their own politicking. Um, and over the last year or so, or a bit longer, we've been hearing increasingly about the unification of fronts. So Iran basically coordinating better between its allies and proxies and client groups to surround Israel with what you could describe as a ring of fire. And that suited Hamas. They wanted more money, more training, and so on. But I don't think that they can be turned on and off. I think the relationship is more distant and more complex. And I think that right now, actually, Hamas is quite unhappy, because they thought that everybody would pitch in once they carried out that attack against Israel. And it was interesting to notice that on that day or that afternoon of October the 7th, they called for an uprising in the West Bank, which did not materialize. And we've heard from Hamas leaders saying, you know, we thank our brothers in Hezbollah for the help they've given so far, but we expected more. And so you're starting to hear in the Arab world People saying, well, you know, Iran will fight Israel until the last Arab. And more specifically, Iran will fight Israel until the last Sunni.
1: That is a very interesting point. And I, it, it leads me to say something which I'm trying not to make sound crass, having visited Iran and worked a little there and having great respect for Iranian friends. But it's the world's worst neighbor in many ways. So while they have allies, as we've talked about in Hamas, Hezbollah and the Houthis, but with certain qualifications, why is it that the various Arab countries in particular, particularly those with a Sunni majority, um, cannot be more, how can I put it, cannot stand up? more against Iranian influence in the region because it is detrimental to the regimes and it's detrimental, you could say, to the economies of places like Lebanon, for example?
3: You know, it's an interesting question and, and there's no easy answer because it depends how you look at it. I mean, what does it mean to stand up to to Iran, right? Should they go to war with Iran? Should they, um, you know, bomb the headquarters of the Revolutionary Guards in, in Tehran? Uh, How do you deal with asymmetric warfare? I mean, clearly, uh, that's the question that Israel has been struggling with for for many years. And it hasn't managed to, as it says, quote unquote, eliminate any of these threats because the pure use of force does not resolve the issue. Uh, You know, in 2006, Hezbollah in Lebanon and Israel went to war and Israel promised to eliminate Hezbollah. And it didn't because it doesn't work like that. There is no way to uh, win an uh, asymmetric warfare against militant groups like that. You can win a, a tactical battle, but then the threat reconstitutes or the cause reorganizes, etc. cetera. And so, you know, 17 years later, Hezbollah is stronger than it's ever been, ever been. It's become a regional paramilitary force with uh, militants positioned in Syria uh, in Iraq, potentially also, as far as we know, in in Yemen, helping the Houthis to train, etc. So when it comes to dealing with the actual groups, what are the options of countries like Saudi Arabia or others to 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 tackle these groups militarily? I, I don't think that's 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 wise. Um, standing up to Iran more generally in the region, as an economic power or as a as a spoiler. Uh, you know that is something that the Saudis, for example, have tried to do with the help of the U.S., and it's what has brought the U.S. into this very difficult position in the region, where it swings from listening too much to Gulf states and increasing its military posture in the region to deciding under Barack Obama, for example, that the best way forward was to disengage from the region, and the way to do that was to uh, remove the threat of a potential nuclear Iran by going, therefore, for a nuclear deal, but not looking at the other activities of Iran in the region. So it's it's quite a complex problem, because at the core of it, we have to understand Iran's insecurities. That's not to justify any of their actions. But they are very insecure because of what happened in the 80s and how the U.S., the Saudis, Kuwait, everybody helped Saddam Hussein in his war against Iran, which was a devastating eight-year-long war. And because of the history of Western involvement in uh, bringing down governments in Iran, uh, there is always a fear of regime change. And so the Iranians surround themselves with this ring of proxy militias that help to fend off any threat of regime change. And there have been moments where Iran has tried to reach out to the rest of the world, particularly to the US, and has not been met with an outstretched hand, actually, particularly in 1990 and in 2001, after September 11th. But one thought here is that a few years ago, a senior Saudi official uh, told me that the best way to contain Iran is to fight Iran economically, to provide a model of prosperity that would be more appealing than what Iran had to offer, Uh, to invest in the region, in Iraq and other places, to help promote like I said, a vision of prosperity. And I thought that was quite smart. But unfortunately, very often Arab countries are their own worst enemy and and they can't seem to really get on the same page and and do that. And some of them have closer relations to Iran and some of them trade with Iran, like the UAE. So, you know, it's it's not that easy. But the last thing that I'd say here is that the best way to also curtail Iran's reach in the region is to wrestle the Palestinian card from their hands. And the way to do that is by making sure that any further normalization talks between Saudi Arabia and Israel deliver a political horizon for the Palestinians and an end to the occupation.
1: Mr. President, Distinguished Delegates, Today, here in the General Assembly, in the world's parliament, countries of principle and conscience, peace-loving nations stood up and proved that the international community has not forsaken humanity, has not forsaken the promise, the purposes and principles of the United Nations and has not abandoned the Palestinian people in these darkest hours.
3: This will be a different kind of war because Hamas is a different kind of enemy. And I want you to know you're not alone. You are not alone. As I emphasized earlier, we will continue to have Israel's back as you work to defend your people.
1: It's very very difficult to to speculate but what might peace look like in Gaza and for Gaza and Israel.
3: Well, it's not just about Gaza, but it's also about the West Bank because I suspect that, you know, just a cessation of hostilities between Israel and Gaza is not equal to peace. It's just equal to whatever it is a humanitarian pause, a, a ceasefire, cessation of hostilities. What many people in the region are are hoping even though you know it looks almost impossible at this moment to envisage that to imagine that is that there can be a serious effort again to go back to the idea of a two state solution even though a lot of people also tell you that idea is is dead because of how much, you know, settlement building is happening on the West Bank and the violence of settlers and the October 7th uh, attack. But the country that wields a lot of power here all of a sudden is Saudi Arabia. The only way forward is the establishment of a Palestinian state. They can't do that on their own. They can't even do that with Bibi Netanyahu because I don't think he's ever going to agree to that. So there's a lot that needs to happen, but the Saudis actually have an opportunity to deliver something substantial, not just for the Palestinians, but for the region, if they can push this forward calmly and quietly and diligently towards a return to peace talks and the establishment of a Palestinian state, the end of the occupation, because that's the only way forward. And it's it's very humbling and and poignant to hear that also from relatives of those Israelis who were kidnapped during the October seventh uh, attack. You know, we don't want war. We must find a way back towards peace. But but the politics, the internal domestic politics of Israel, are, are really going to be one of the key issues to to look at as this unfolds. But the Saudis have so far, and and most. Arab countries so far have been quite measured in their reactions. They've called for ceasefire. They've condemned the killing of civilians on both sides, which may not sound like a lot, but it's more than we used to have in the past. Um, So, again, it depends how all of this unfolds. You know, if we suddenly see a big push by the Israelis to actually send two million Palestinians into the Sinai, um, potentially the end of the Middle East as we know it, potentially the end of the e- Egypt-Israel peace treaty and the end of the Abraham Accord. So there's, there's a lot of worst case scenarios that we can look at, but we're going to end on a positive note and hope that the talks in the background are looking not just at the short-term conflict, uh, but also thinking medium and long-term about how we move away from these repeated cycles of violence.
1: Of course, you could say that the conflict in Israel and Palestine has already spread much further than even the Middle East. It has stirred up obvious divisions in other countries, including our own. Here's Jonathan Friedland again. Are you surprised at the depth of feeling about this and the nastiness that's going on, or do you think that's that was
2: always there? Um, I feel very sad about it. I mean, it, it, and di- dispirited by it. Um, I really understand it of Jews. I get Palestinians by their in it. Jews, given the history over the last century and many centuries before their attachment to Israel is not contingent on, on this or that Israeli government or this or that policy, the feeling that Israeli Jews have and they feel it even stronger now than ever, is that it's necessary, that it's somehow a need to have a place that is ultimately their own and that they can be safe and defend themselves. It's a deep emotional need. I always say to people, if you don't understand that as a you know you're really going to struggle to understand Israel and the Middle East I think you have to get that emotional the sense in which Jews carry out a huge problem to which they felt the idea of a Jewish homeland was an answer and if you that's a starting point the rest you can then talk about so I get why Jews feel it I get why Palestinians in diaspora and a huge Palestinian diaspora in the world. I get absolutely why they're in it and in, in a strange way, Jews and Palestinians recognise something in each other when they talk to each other. This feeling of a diaspora bound up with and involved in a conflict that just brings so much sadness and bloodshed all the time. I get why Muslims feel it. That uh, you know, it was said to me recently by a Muslim that you've got to remember. He said that Palestine might be the only issue that Muslims around the world all have in common. That if you're in Turkey or Pakistan or Belgium and you're Muslim, this is the one thing you all share. So I get that. Um, I'm not surprised, because I've become familiar with it, but I am uh, you know, frustrated by those people who don't have those in, you know, uh, stakes in this, who nevertheless have either recently or more, longer ago latched onto it in the manner of a distant supporter of a football team, who sort of wave a flag and cheer for one side, not another, who grieve for one side's sorrows but not the other, who are prepared to forgive, wish away, erase, or even deny the misdeeds, if not crimes, of their side, and will only magnify and inflate the misdeeds of the other. That kind of binary view of this, I have really no patience for that. It only makes things harder because it drives people to extremes where actually what you need is people to see the abundance of pain there is in this conflict, to feel for both sides and then think with the benefit that people outside have, which is some clarity, some detachment, some distance. Use that, be useful try and see what the outlines of a solution might be empower the people who are talking about an accommodation and a, a, a you know a, a deal between the two rather than cheering for the sides who are those maximalists i was talking about who want it all for them don't cheer either sides you know extremists Instead, the really neglected group of the moderates on each side, Palestinians and Israelis, who need some backing. So if you're outside it, see if you can actually find the humanity in both and see if you can give some contribution to finding eventually uh, some kind of accommodation for this place that has known just too much loss and death and pain.
1: As Jonathan Friedland and Kim Gattas surely agree, no one is going anywhere. For centuries, Muslims, Jews and Christians have somehow found that cooperation is, in the end, preferable to conflict, even if historical grievances and fears remain. All sides bear out that famous and often misquoted line from the American novelist William Faulkner, the past is never dead, it's not even past. But as the cycle of violence in and around Israel continues, It's worth remembering the patient and largely unreported diplomacy that's been going on for years in the background. Last year, I visited Bahrain to take part in television coverage of the visit of Pope Francis at the request of the king, Hamid bin Isa al-Khalifa. They met together with one of the Arab world's leading Islamic scholars, the Grand Imam of the Al-Azhar in Egypt. Jewish rabbinical representatives were present too. The Pope, the King, and the Grand Imam greeted each other like old friends. And despite the horrors the world is seeing and Palestinians and Israelis are enduring, there are still those who continue to work for peace in that disputed ground that all three Abrahamic religions regard as the Holy Land. This is not a drill. I'm Gavin Esler. Goodbye.
2: Not a Drill was written and presented by Gavin Esler and produced by me, Robin Lever. Our music's by Paul Hartnell,
1: art by Jim Parrott, and social media by Jess Harvin. Group editor is Andrew Harrison, executive producer Martin Boytosh, and This Is Not a Drill is a Podmasters production.